Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So like we had a great story in our head of like, if we can simply make money flow or value flow fast and free frictionlessly around the world, like a lot of good is going to happen. But then, you know, that's the ending. That's the happy ending. Like what are the chapters that we're going to write in between to get there? The first one was, well, we're going to build this new infrastructure. Let's let's start getting it out there and getting it quickened in an area where it's already accepted. And that's what we did. You know, that was the first one. And we worked backwards from that. They're trying to make the story happen. They're not trying to make a list of tasks happen. And I think that's a, a really important distinction. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. When you go from leading an engineering org of 1,400 people to 12, how do your leadership principles need to change? How do you have to operate differently as a leader? How do you actually scale yourself down? In this episode, James Everingham, VP of Engineering at Lightspark, returns to the show to share his best tools for scaling yourself down, not up, as an engineering leader. And in this conversation, we cover how scaling down impacts your risk tolerance. We talk about leveraging the Socratic method to scale your leadership and decision-making across all stages of the company. We talk about creating narratives as a product and engineering goal-setting tool. This one rocked my world. We also talk about how to balance the right amount of process, you know, the existential question whenever you jump into a startup. We also get into how to change your communication for smaller organizations and more. Let me introduce you to James. James Everingham is co-founder and VP of engineering at Lightspark, where they're building core infrastructure on the Lightning Network. Previously, he was VP of engineering for Novi at Meta and co-creator of Diem. He also served as head of engineering at Instagram, vice president of engineering for Yahoo Media Properties, CTO and founding team member of LiveOps, senior director of engineering at TellMe, acquired by Microsoft, and senior director of engineering at Netscape Communications, where he spearheaded the flagship Netscape browser. And before joining Netscape, James held engineering and management positions at Oracle and Borland International. This is James returning to the show. He's a longtime friend of ELC. Enjoy our conversation with James Everingham. Welcome, James, to the show. Uh, it's good to be reconnected. I think there's been some fun things to note. Uh, you've helped kick off ELC conferences in the past, our, our first in-person one in 2019, and our, our first virtual one uh, the year after. So this is a fun, special moment. It's a sort of a, a reconnecting and, and a catch-up in a lot of ways. Um, I think to introduce and frame our conversation, we spent a lot of time talking to folks about you know scaling up and building their organization, building their leadership capacity, but we are hardly ever talk about the inverse of that and the shift down. From my understanding, that seems to be the headline for one of the, the things that you've experienced uh, in the last year or so. Let's catch up. So talk to us about that shift and where you're at right now. What, what has that been like? 
I've done this a few times in my career, so I wasn't completely unprepared for it. But I do think it's important when you're going from a large environment to a small environment to acknowledge that they're very different skills. I ride a lot of bikes, so I use a lot of biking analogies, and it's like ascending skills versus descending skills. Going up a mountain is completely different than going down, so you can't rely on what gets you up there on getting you down. And it's completely different muscles. It's a completely different set of skills. And I think that this is super like relevant to the work environment when you're going from a large company to a startup or a smaller company is you have to be conscious about what those changes are. And it's very different muscles. And um, if you get hung up on what you were doing in the larger environment, it cannot turn out well in the smaller environments or not be useful. And can you share like, how different are we talking here? Like for what you're doing, at, like the context in which you're, you're building at LightSpark, and then the context you were operating before, yeah. like, how different are we talking about? I think they're almost complete opposite. They're not slight changes. You have to go in a completely different direction. Back at Meta, when I was working there, there was a very large team I was running. It was over a thousand people. Then you go down to a few people. But the environment is really different. What you did in the large company, it's not the same in a small company at all. In a large company, you likely have product market fit, you have uh, an established customer base, and you have to move very carefully and thoughtfully in order not to you know, disrupt your business. In a small company or a startup, you don't have that. You have to like move quickly and you have to make crazy decisions and do things wrong. When you're trained to do things right, moving to doing things wrong is like a hard mental shift to make. And then also in a large company, you have a lot of resources. You're relying on so many things that are available to you. At a small company, you don't have those. So you can't expect things to be done for you. You have to go and do them yourself. And managers tend to rely on process a lot. Like, okay, here's a problem. How are we going to fix it with process? And that's also something that doesn't serve well in, in a small company. So you have to make conscious decisions to counteract those. What has that been like for you going from Meta to LightSpark? And how did you approach being able to, to make that mental shift as an engineering leader there? Sure. Well, it certainly wasn't natural at first. It's kind of uncomfortable whenever you, you know, have years and years of working on doing things well and making sure they're crafted well and thought through to going down to this environment where you need to do the opposite thing. And the way that I do it is I always ask myself in my mind, what am I optimizing for? And so like, if you can figure out what you're optimizing for, you can anchor a lot of your actions on that. So in a large company, you're optimizing for stability, keeping your customers happy, reliability. But in a small company, you have to realize that you're optimizing for innovation and product market fit. And if you deconstruct that in your mind, you come to a very different conclusion than you would in a large company. And so that's where I sort of tee it off of. Did you ever find yourself maybe stuck in the previous pattern of thinking and had to like spend extra attention to sort of get over that? Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly even now still catching myself when I see a problem, like I'm like, okay, what process can we go? And, it's, and I have to keep reminding myself, it's a struggle. I'd like to say that there's an instant easy fix for this. But like, I think the best thing is to just keep reminding yourself that like, what are better ways to do it? Keep questioning your underlying assumptions. Get your team to help you, like call you out. Every time I ask my team, I tell them, I'm like, look, this is going to happen because this is the muscles I've built. So you're going to have to like call me out when I do this. And so I get the help from my team as well. I think it's so powerful that you have extended the invitation to your team to call you out in those moments. 
I think the the ability and the awareness that you have to share, like here are the sort of default patterns that I have, like please help me transcend those. Like I think that's a really powerful practice. It's very helpful and it's um it's very helpful when everyone feels empowered too. And it just creates a better culture. Going back to what you mentioned about the differences in resources and the necessity to do things yourself, going from, you know, 1,000 plus people to then operating in a different leaner context from what you shared, like you have to do a lot more things yourself. How did you make that switch to, to be able to, and I guess what areas did you find were surprising that you were getting your hands into? When you go down to a non-hierarchical environment, it's not really clear first where decisions are going to be made. In a large organization, you can kind of look at it and understand how decisions are made and where they're going to be made. You don't have that luxury in a small company. So the first thing you have to do is just start making decisions. And you can't ask permission. You just have to sort of do it. It's a luxury because, like, you also don't need the coordination, right? You know, you can you can cut all the overhead in that. You can go straight to making decisions. So I found myself, you know, I, I would still get caught up in, and I think, you know, I work for uh, my boss now is the same boss I had at Meta. So that even makes it harder because, like, how do I pull myself out of the pattern I was in a big company because I'm working for the same person and now I'm going to change behavior. But I just started making decisions that I felt that he would make in the company and, you know, he appreciated it. And then he sort of kept that um, feedback loop and, and, you know, empowered me more to go do things. But I started building process and things for even like HR and areas outside of engineering that I would have done in a large company down to how the physical space looks, you know, all these different things that you wouldn't do in a in, in the large company. There's one story that you have about decision making that I think is is it really exemplifies the power of, of speed and decision making. Uh, the one about making the senior hire. Can you share more about like that story and how that felt different in the moment from operating in the, the previous larger context? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the uh, when you're making a senior hire in a really large company, there there's a process involved, right? I mean, it's it's complicated and it can take a long time. It takes a lot of approval mechanisms. Um, you have to go through a lot of conversations. You have to get a lot of buy-in from other senior executives across the company. I think that David and I were just casually talking and we're like, hey, you know, where I would have just kicked off the process in the big company, like, what do you think about making this hire? And um, David cut right to the chase and said, let's just do it. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, and then we both had a, um, a moment of like joy where David reminded me like, you know, that would have taken like a year or so in the large company. And we did that in like under 10 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. You know, let's enjoy that in a small company. That's what allows you to move faster. And, you know, in a small company, that's one of the advantages is your speed. I, I love the fact that you recognize that moment to be able to, because it also almost seems like you could be like, yes, we are making decisions faster. And this is that moment. And we are mm -hmm. here and we are doing it. And it's great. Um, I think the power of that recognition then is a, is a pretty cool conscious thing to do. Yeah, it definitely, it, it, it felt great. And um, we've had many more moments like that since and looking forward to many more. So outside of decision making, one of the things that I think is interesting is some of the things that you've mentioned about what you optimize for with your communication and your communication patterns within your team are different. Being focusing on getting inner team communication versus broadcast and aligning the entire organization. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about how that's different, large to small, and, and share a little bit more about what that might look like at LightSpark when you're making that shift down in leadership. 
Yeah, sure. Like, well, the first thing to acknowledge, I think communication in a large organization is very complicated. You've got a lot of layers, you have different teams, you have to put a lot of thought into how you message that. You have to acknowledge that the equivalent of telephone game happens so that like if you tell something that gets passed down, there's a pretty good chance that what you said is not going to be what makes it down to the lowest levels. So you have to be very repetitive. You know, you have to keep focusing and communicating to the company and repeating and repeating and repeating. And that sort of drills the message down. And then on top of that, like, you know, you have to make sure that your message is crafted to land right with each group because it's a complicated machine and there's a lot of information happening. People are probably in information overload. Now, a small company doesn't have any of that. Like, you know, this one team, likely the same messaging works for the entire company and you're not really broadcasting as much as you are trying to facilitate conversations. So what you're trying to do is get people talking with each other more than talk at them. Especially when you're optimizing for innovation, you're trying to do things and invent things. You have no idea what you really want. You just know what you're trying to accomplish. You wanna get everyone talking. I think that the tools that you use for facilitating communication are very different than the ones that you use for broadcasting communication in a large company. Are there certain structures that you've introduced with the team or like what have been some of those conversations that have existed? Who are the people that you're trying to get together to have that higher fidelity conversation together? One is I think the whole company tries to connect people cross-functionally a lot more than you would Mm -hmm. see in a large company. So we end up having groups of people that are in all different functions in conversations, right? And I think what we do is we have a lot of more problems that need to be solved than rather having existing solutions to be able to recommend. So we find ourselves bringing problems to, to, to the company more than we have solutions to get them engaged in solving them. And I think this is super important in building your culture early because you want your team to be invested into the solutions. And this gives an opportunity to build those for later, but like have everyone invested in the thought process of bringing them. So like, I think that I would say that the main difference is the cross-functionality, the types of things that we bring to the company, the level of involvement that we're trying to get from people in these conversations to get them to participate and not just listen. One of my favorite quotes is authorship breeds ownership. And so that the practice that you're introducing there of bringing more problems and solutions, like it, that resonates so much because I think that truly shifts the mindset for how people within the organization operates. I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And and to build on to that, you know, I'm a big fan of the Socratic approach. I think one of the keynotes I did got into that is like, even with yourself, if you're trying to transfer an idea, if you do that with the right questions to get the person to come up with the same idea that you have, you get the benefit of maybe being wrong and them coming up with a better idea. But if they think through it, there is a more ownership in there because they've come to the solution themselves in their mind through the questioning. And that also helps foster ownership. I want to talk about the Socratic questioning method a, a little bit more, specifically wondering if there's like maybe a context or an example recently where, where that's unlocked a new solution. Because the power of questions for as a leader has come up a couple times. But what's so hard is to understand where does this context come up and where does it unlock these powerful opportunities? Because I think it's a really hard practice and habit to build as a leader we're supposed to have the answers or, or that's sort of the maybe contradictory perspective for what people should have. Tell us more about like how this is like the Socratic questioning has shown up. Yeah, sure. Well, I think the first misconception is that as a manager, or a leader, you're expected to have all the answers. A lot of senior and junior managers 
have that. And I think it's, it's not right. I think that like the best managers are the ones that basically are out to get the best answer and um, acknowledge that the way to find that is to enable group think. So I think like, you know, anytime that I have a preconceived idea, I try my best to present it to the team as what solution I'm trying to solve first and ask how they might solve it. Uh, recent examples, uh, without going into too many specifics, are probably like the way that we deal with customers. Like, you know, hey, we have customers coming in and this is how they interact with us. This is what we're trying to achieve. What do you recommend or how do you want to handle it? And then, you know, if you start there and then ask the right questions and make it a game, like I'm going to thoughtfully not try to say anything, but, you know, present everything via a question, usually can get pretty good results. And often I find that the ideas are way better than what my original was, or they're like dramatically improved, or I was completely wrong. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of the general process that I go through. Fantastic. Diving in deeper to Socratic questioning, and if this is a practice that you're going to employ, are there certain questions that you found to be helpful to kind of open up that dialogue? Like when you're going to begin this, this dialogue with a group or with an individual, like what are some of the questions that you rely on to, to move through this and help unlock these ideas? Well, I think that the first thing is not the question, but how you frame the problem whenever you're about to engage your team is to focus them on what outcome you're hoping to achieve. And so being really clear about what you want to happen and not what your opinions are on how it happens, I think is important. So I'll kick one off usually like saying, hey, here's where we need, here's where we need to get to, you know, whatever the topic is, this is what we want winning. This is what winning looks like. And um, open up the floor for discussion on how we can get there. And depending on, you know, if it's technical or not, you're going to start with a whole different set of questions. You know, like, what stack do we want to use for this? Well, why? Why are you making that choice? You think it's more secure? Why do you think that? You know, like, just, just keep going in the form of engaging in conversation and in, in questions until you get to the end result that you were hoping for. This brings up when we're talking about questions and the, the types of questions that you introduce. One of the practices that, that you've shared that I find really interesting is the one about anchoring decision-making principles, like creating your anchoring decision-making principles and some of the questions that you use to not just make a decision, but to rather generate the principles behind a decision. And so I was wondering, can you, can you share a little bit more about that and how that plays a role in some of these types of conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think this is probably one of the most important things to get right. And it's the one thing that I think operates almost identically in a small company as in a large company. This is the one thing I haven't changed. And it's a skill that like will carry all the way through scaling up to a large team. And basically, the muscle is like you want to make sure decisions are well made. And a well-made decision, you should be able to describe very well. Like you should be able to explain why the decision was made and how. And I think the way to do that is with principle. Principles are, you know, small algorithms that sort of control or guide how things happen. But when you define them, there are also things that like an engineer can use to, or anyone in a company can use to um, guide or defend their actions. And uh, they're completely scalable. It's a way of systemizing things. Like, and I can give you an example of one of my favorite ones. Okay. Like, like when we came down to the, the beginning of this company, we're like, how are we going to staff it? You know, and it's like, okay, well, let's start with this one simple principle. If something's important, put somebody in charge of it. Okay. So now if you 
practically translate that, you know, you, you sort of come up with an architectural diagram of what you want to build. Here's some big meaningful areas. Those are important. Let's hire people to come in and own those. And that's their area. And so like, that's one way of doing it. So that's a principle. Other wins are things like winning should be measurable or goals should be measurable. And, you know, that suggests that like you shouldn't take on things that you can't measure or we're going to solve customer problems before business problems is one I like. You know, it's like, especially in a startup, you sort of can get stuck in the, well, how will we make money? And while that's important, that also can sort of uh, defocus you from building customer value. Revenue is a company problem, solving a company problem, but it's not a customer problem. And if you don't focus on solving customer problems, especially early on, uh, it may not be a very long run for you. I want to dive into the, a little bit more into that because I think that the mindset you have as as co-founder or like key executive business leader and somebody maybe is coming at a different level, like may approach those with different understandings of how important approaching those principles are. How did you develop the customer before business problem principle? And how has that driven decisions for certain things that you focus on or don't focus on? I think that principle also can be equally dangerous in a large company. And that's sort of where I learned this was in a large company. Um, when I was at Instagram, Kevin Systrom, who was the head of product and you know CEO of the company at the time, he would always call us out on this. And like he was very, very focused on building the best customer experience and it showed in the product. And any time and during a product review, if someone brought something up that the only reason for it was to make more money, he would call us out. He was like, look, you know, you're solving a company problem not a customer problem. And he had a deep rooted belief that like, if we went down that road, it, it would get out of control. And pretty soon you have a product that was built to optimize for revenue and not for a great customer experience. And you'll lose your customers. This happened also back in my career, back at Yahoo, I was running engineering for their homepage. And, uh, they got really good at monetizing the homepage. Revenue was king and you needed to keep trying to get more revenue. I mean, companies have a responsibility to, to make revenue. And uh, we learned that like looking over time, we were getting increasingly better at monetizing fewer and fewer people. So like the fact that we were putting more ads was uh, making more money, but we were also losing people because we were making more ads. So, you know, so you have to be conscious of those two things. And that suggests that you have to make hard decisions and prioritize. In a startup, I think it's super important that you're, you're building the right thing for your customers at first. Both those examples are iconic because I think about Yahoo, like the Yahoo homepage to me, like there's, there's sort of this image burnt in my head of, of like landing on that for like a long, long time um, and seeing it evolve over time. And then plus, you know, the, the Instagram example takes up a lot of people's experience for sure. I can also give you an example of how like these principles equally work in a large company, you know, in a different way. The other thing that I think is super valuable about when you when you focus on principled decision making and, you know, once again, this is systemizing decisions, you're giving people the tools and the algorithms on how to make decisions. These are basically frameworks. They're simple frameworks that if you get your team to agree on, suddenly you gain a lot of transparency because there's no mystery behind how a decision was made. They can simply look at the principles and figure it out themselves. So that's really important. And, uh, things get a lot less political because if they don't know why you're disagreeing with them or why you're not supporting their decision without principles, they can take it personally. And one example of this was also Instagram. We had some remote offices. And so we were like, 
how do we build teams in these remote offices? And of course, my first instinct was, well, let's figure out what the principles are that would uh, enable us to build a team in a different location. So we came up with, look, you know, career growth is important. So there should be director level scope in whatever we put there. There was other Facebook resources there, so they should have local adjacencies with the resources in Facebook. They should have an adjacency with the talent pool that that area has. You know, there's like a lot of machine learning in New York because of the finance and all of that. So we had a New York office and maybe that's something we could use. We came up with these principles and then like one manager had come to me and he wanted to build the mobile front end, the web front end for uh, Instagram. And he's like, I want to spin up a team. They could putting it in New York. And uh, I was like, okay, well, let's go over the principles. I'm like, how big will the team get? And he was like, it's never going to get above about 20 people. Like, I can do this pretty efficiently. And I was like, all right, is there a lot of front-end talent in New York? And he was like, well, no, not particularly. And by the time we got through the conversation, I, like, audited the principles with him. I'm like, so what do you think we should do now that we've... He was like, yeah, you're right. We probably shouldn't do that. I was like, okay, great. So um, if I would have just said without that, no, you can't do that, he would have been like, He's not enabling me. He's not allowing me to go do this. He has something against me. And you just sort of remove the politics. You get the transparency and you give people the tools to be able to go make these decisions. It's super scalable. It's something you can do in a startup. You should start doing it on day one. It's a muscle that will like completely carry you all the way through small to incredibly large. Seeing the layering of two approaches we've talked about here so far, both the decision-making, like how, like the Socratic questioning and the principle-based decisions, how they layer together in a way that creates a more empowered decision, I think is really interesting to see how those sort of combine for, for a great outcome. Yeah, and um, even with those principles, like I didn't come up with those principles, my team came up with those principles. They were better than ones I would have done uh, in a vacuum by myself. With these being essential to any team, large, small, uh, especially small and starting out and how they can scale up, what does like that day one creation look like? Like, how do you create some of these these early decision making principles with your team? Like, what's the shift that needs to happen? Or what's the conversation that needs to happen either one off or ongoing to help generate these and anchor these? Yeah, I don't think that there's like a, a starting point that is obvious. But I would say that you need early on to start evangelizing what they are, and how they're used. And then anytime a decision comes up, you have to ask yourself, how am I going to make this decision? How do I show my work to the company? How do I explain how this decision is going to be made? Is this a decision that's going to happen again? Or is this a one-off? What's the frequency of this type of decision? And then, you know, mark it as a candidate for principled thinking. Now, I do think that there are some things that are just going to happen, like uh, hiring, um, you're going to be staffing, what's your staffing plan going to be? What type of people are you going to be hiring? You know, there are some things that you can like start thinking about before you get in that are you're probably going to want to have principal thinking around. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Another area I wanted to explore here, and, and you'd brought this up uh, as a, a possible trap for folks making that shift down, 
is this element of process. And this is an area that you're talking about, like some of the self-talk you have to remind yourself is what to optimize for and getting your team to help provide a check and balance there. How do you balance or think about where to introduce process? You shouldn't be afraid of process. And I think that it's a mistake. And, uh, and I've even done this in the past myself is like one of my startups. I was like, I'm so tired of corporate process. I'm not going to do any. That didn't end well. Like, uh, you know, it's like eventually if you're going to be a successful company, and I hope you're planning on being one, if you're starting a company, you're going to need some coordination. And the key is you have to know where to put it and how much. Now, the things that probably are candidates for, for process are not that different than what I said for the principles is like, do you need to solve a problem that's a one-off or is it something that you're going to see happen again? And if it's uh, going to be something that's going to happen frequently, what is the frequency? And then the next would be, is it something complicated or simple? Because like a simple thing, likely your team will just handle organically. So you want to like be really thoughtful on those things. And uh, the final question is, how does your team feel about it? Like, you don't want to push this on your team if they're not buying into it. And I think that's important for your culture is to not push process on your team that they don't want. And I don't think if you can explain the value of it to your team even early on, you may want to reconsider doing it. Whenever I try to suggest process at our size, one of the advantages that I have is I've been in a large company and a small company, so I can kind of see where it's going to go and what you're going to need in a couple of years. So if you can explain, like, this is where we need to end up. This is what it's going to look like. Do you agree? And then ask the question, do you think you want to do that when you're large and try to build that muscle? Or should we try to start doing that now and grow it over time? Like, I think that there are thoughtful ways of putting in process. There's like two types of uh, people that I'm sort of afraid of bringing into a startup environment. And one are people that just love process. And then the other one is people who hate process. I like people with like a healthy respect for process. <laughs> uh, and I think that there's somewhere in the middle that you need to be. Both of them have certain perspectives and would likely try to over-optimize for those different areas. For somebody who, say, loves process or leans towards that on that spectrum, before you introduce or recreate a process, what should you do? Like, are there certain questions or principles that you can introduce to help evaluate or assess if this process will fit? The important thing is that you build the process with your company. Everyone's going to be different. Your team are going to have different needs. Your culture is going to be different. And I think that you need to involve them. I think what we do is we bring our experience in and we make recommendations and we try to like uh, shine a spotlight on the future of how the company will land and um, work with the team to thoughtfully put it in. But I've honestly come and said, here's process I think we should put in. And my team said, let's not do that. I'm not going to force it. You know, it's right for the time. And it's been the right decision. I don't think there's a lot of principles that I would can think of beyond what I've stated on candidates for areas of process. On the other side, to avoid like overcorrecting and, you know, shirking all process to begin with, like, how do you avoid like the that overcorrection, you know, beyond like, maybe not hiring the person who is anti process anarchy, full checklist autonomy, like, how do you avoid that overcorrection and shirking all of process? There's a couple of areas. One is that you have to be thoughtful on how you put process in yourself. And then I think that what you want to do is as you expand and you do hire people, you have to make sure you're aligned with them and you have to find people that are like-minded here. 
you have to sort of dig in and find out like how they've handled large and small teams, like when they've used process and it failed and what they've learned from it. So like you, you have to sort of hire the right people as well as use your own experience and uh, common sense into where you want to put this stuff. There, there are two specific applications of process here that I, I think your approach has been really interesting. One has been around like what product planning looks like at LightSpark. The other is the story behind creating like a functional or placeholder review process for, for team members. So I was wondering if you can kind of deconstruct how you arrived at those process elements for, for those specific areas. One thing that if we go back to the original question about like, you know, what's different in a large company and a small company, one of the things is that you, I mentioned is you're optimizing for two different things, right? You have stability versus innovation. One of the things that is really different is your product planning. You have no idea what you're going to be building. You have to be very nearsighted, right? Like you don't have visibility past a few weeks down to level of detail. How do you plan longer, you know? And the thing that I've found useful is like putting a narrative out there. So like in a large company where you're telling and communicating product plans, in a small company, I think you're doing a lot more storytelling. You're basically giving a narrative out there that's flexible and it may change, you know, and a narrative is kind of like a book. And then you're breaking that book up into chapters. Hopefully your book has a good ending and um, a happy ending. And uh, you, you want to work through your narrative and be flexible along the way. And the way to do that is to try to get detailed as you get closer to what you're doing and be more vague and put a waypoint out there for your team. Maybe a rough example would be, hey, let's say you're building a newsfeed product. It's like, okay, we wanna build a newsfeed product that is making a certain amount of revenue. It's gonna be profitable making this much money by the end of the year. Okay, so chapter one, we have to get enough inventory. So we have to build the user experience to get it engaged enough to build enough inventory. Chapter two, now that we have the inventory, we have to buy it, find advertisers and sell into that feed. Chapter three, now that we have the ads running into the feed, we have to work on the effectiveness and get the cost per click or CPM up to hit those goals. Chapter four, end of story, we have a profitable news feed. Then you take that first one, we have to get inventory. And then now you start like zooming in and you can get maybe to a week or two weeks of very specific detail because it's important to put some detail out there for your team. Like teams that sort of set goals, even if they're short term, outperform teams that don't, hands down. And this is also something, it's just a little bit of process that if you don't put in early, it's pretty painful to put in later. I've made the mistake of um, having uh, a team come in and running it for six, seven months and without setting goals and saying, okay, we're going to get in the process of setting goals. And that was painful. They didn't, you know, didn't want to do it. And uh, once they got over it and did it, you know, it worked out well and we built that muscle. But like starting early and getting in, but not focusing on the long term, focusing on the short term. A long term product plan in a large company, it can also be limiting right? Because you're focused on a very long road, you have blinders on. But if you're only planning for a week or two, then you're open. And you know, you can move faster, you can move in different directions. So that acknowledgement through this type of a process, I think is super valuable. And the template I think you're referring to was sort of my attempt at saying at our stage, your product plan should never have to fit on more than a single page, right? It's, it's like a one page thing. I can give you a, a really quick story on at Yahoo too. When I first went in there, 
I sent in a product review and there were 52 areas and we had to go through 52 product reviews and they all had different. And I'm like, this was crazy. And I took out my startup spreadsheet from my previous company, which was this. I said, we're going to manage this all in one spreadsheet. And they thought it was insanity. But in three months, they loved it. It was so simple. They could go to one spot. They were innovating and moving fast again, all from this one template. So getting the right information, focusing on short term, acknowledging that things are going to change fast, being open to things changing fast can be reflected in this process. And the template I use, I think, sort of supports and enables that. I told you this before we started recording, the narrative goal setting tool. I haven't resonated with a goal setting approach. I've been on a quest for 15 years or so to find one that that fits that dynamic that you need both the clarity for where you want to go, but the flexibility in the short term to get there. And so I, I want to talk about like the introduction of that to the team at LightSpark. So what did that conversation look like? How did you align on like that 12 month? What does winning look like? And then begin to start to shape chapter one together? Like what did that conversation look like to form those? Yeah, sure. Well, this conversation probably started a long time ago, even before we started the company, honestly, like David Marcus, who we work for, he's an amazing storyteller. The reason I'm here is because he told me an amazing story I couldn't get out of my head. I was bought in. And you're focusing on the vision and the mission when you tell a story. You're not focusing on like a list of items. And when you can get people bought into that vision, they're going to perform a lot better. They're like really invested in it. So like it's super important in a startup, especially when you don't know what the list of tasks is, you should try to inspire your team and get them excited about it. So we sort of like we're already bought in on the mission here that we set out to do a long time ago, which was, you know, build an open protocol for money. Like we think it's important. We see the advantages of it. I was lucky enough to go through the early Netscape era and the beginning of the internet to see how what this did for information. And the thought of that happening was super inspiring. So like we had a great story in our head of like, if we can simply make money flow or value flow fast and free frictionlessly around the world, like a lot of good is going to happen. So, you know, we were bought in on that. But then, you know, that's the ending. That's the happy ending. Like, what are the chapters that we're going to write in between to get there? The first one was, well, we're going to build this new infrastructure. Let's let's start getting it out there and getting it quickened in an area where it's already accepted. And that's what we did. You know, that was the first one. And we worked backwards from that. But, uh, you know, we do have a narrative internally. We do have a story. Um, this is the thing that the teams are teeing off of. They're trying to make the story happen. They're not trying to make a list of tasks happen. And I think that's a, a really important distinction. You know, people, especially when you don't know what the tasks are that are going to make it happen, you want to provoke, you want them to be autonomous and you want them to like be able to solve these problems themselves. And this is what we're doing as a team right now is everyone's focused on the same narrative. We know the chapters of the book. We know how we want the story to end, and we're writing it in day at a time. Here's the lists. We're working through it. We're going to get to the end. And, uh, you know, for lack of a, a better way of describing it, that's sort of the process that we're doing. For anybody who's applying this framework for the first time or early in their experience, are there final pieces of advice that you would give people as they, as they apply this framework? Saying that as somebody who just rolled this out with their team yesterday, thinking through how we can do it better, like when you're thinking about creating the narrative and, and being able to, to build this, this story together, any final pieces of advice to, to execute on that well? I do think it's important, like, you know, when you're moving from management to sort of leadership and sort of storytelling and being visionary that like, you believe deeply in the story that you're telling, people will pick up if you're not buying your own story. 
So the first thing is, you know, make sure the story you're telling you're inspired by. And if not, get it there and figure out what does sort of drive you. Because like the way that you present that to your team is important. You know, you want it to be infectious with their, and you want them to be inspired. You want them to really understand what the vision and mission is and be bought into it. And if you're not, it's going to be hard to get others to. And be creative. You know, like I years ago, one of my colleagues who I still work with came and said, you know, we have the best jobs, you know, we get to be science fiction authors and go write science fiction stories about how the future is, but we actually get to go try to make it happen. That's kind of true. So like, be creative, build a great narrative, break it up into digestible chapters that are actionable. Make sure the chapter delineations make sense. Have an ending to each one that's measurable, that makes sense to get you to the next chapter. And for, for folks listening to this, James has some incredible examples of what this looks like. I'm going to share a link to that article so you can see that structure. Because what I did was I read his passage, took the template, and put it into Notion. And that was that's how we've developed this framework and applied it ourselves. So um, if you're like, I want to apply this and make it work immediately, we'll have that in the, in the show notes. James, we have a couple rapid-fire questions. Are you ready to jump in? Sure, let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? Boy, a few things. I read a lot with my ears, so it means I mostly listen. But like uh, currently, I'd say the top of my list that I'm enjoying right now is Adam Grant's Think Again. And I think it's really relevant to this conversation, right? And it's basically the power of knowing what you don't know is sort of the subtitle of it. But like always questioning your underlying assumptions. You know, the fact that you learned something and came to a conclusion, don't take it for granted that it's going to stay that way. So always be reflective. I love books that give me tools that allow me to look at things differently and rethink things, get out of process, out of practice, things like that. So that's the one I'm reading now. And what I think is so interesting about you sharing that is, is we can see some of those approaches at play in like the earliest parts of our conversation. We were talking about how to work with your teams. Um, and so it's interesting to see that line of question of how you're asking your team to challenge your assumptions. It is so rare to see how people are applying the things that they learned live within their teams. And so I think that's just an observation I think is, is really special. Love doing science experiments <laughs> on my team. I bet you they, they appreciate it also. No. <laughs> ne- next question. You shared a ton of great different approaches, tools, methodologies with us. Is there a tool or a methodology that's had a big impact on you? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about it already. It's hands down principled thinking, not just in work, but in all aspects of my life is like thinking about how you make decisions and building the muscle of describing how you make decision and why over the value of the actual decision itself. That is hands down the one thing that doesn't change under scale. It's a muscle that you build and it will carry you through large teams or small teams, especially large teams. You, you need to build rules for your, your when you're in large teams. It's very important. And that's the one thing that's benefited me the most. Two more final questions. Next one. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Ooh, well, you know, I don't really um, think of myself as a futurist. I will sort of just say it's probably the one that I've been chasing now for like uh, five years that I still deeply believe is one that hasn't hit mainstream and when it will, it will be a big impact. And that's just blockchain in general. I think that what we're starting to see, though, and that hasn't hit mainstream is looking at these things like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin as a protocol and not as like a currency. 
you have to look at like the fact that it's a pretty amazing like decentralized tool if you want a ledger, if you want things that are mathematically provable, visible, and auditable that nobody can change. It's a pretty powerful tool. So we're seeing things now happen in Bitcoin like ordinals, where it's like things are moving across more like a protocol than they are of value. And I think that this is something that we're going to see more and more of. I love it. Last question, James. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been really resonating with you right now? That's a fantastic question, and there's a lot of them. But um, I, I've had the really good fortune of uh, working for some amazing leaders. And like the thing that rolls around in my head are quotes from all these leaders. And the two that have been like sort of going back and forth in my head right now, being back into startup situation, because depending on my situation, it's different when sort of come to the front of mind is like, Back at Netscape, Jim Barksdale, he was like the most quotable guy, but like the one that comes to mind, he would always, and it wasn't his, he was rephrasing. It was an old cowboy quote that was like, never confuse uh, a clear view for a short distance. You know, I have to remind myself that, you know, like these are long-term, especially when you're doing something that's a really long-term project, that's a big goal, big mission. And even though it's clear and like you see it crystal clear in your head, acknowledging that this is going to work and take a while is like valuable. So there's that one. And I'll add the second one too, which is like another Barksdale, which wasn't his either, but it was like a Stephen Covey quote, I think was like the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that was basically, hey, you know, don't get distracted. You know, there's a lot of things to chase, especially in a startup. You see all these crazy opportunities, like, but keep focused on the mission, Make sure you're focused on the most important things and, you know, the main things to keep the main thing, the main thing. So those are probably the two that are in my head right now. As somebody who's in an early small stage company, I can tell you right now, I feel seen, I feel heard. I feel like you just described my early stage journey. <laughs> and so I think people listening in who are in that shifted down scale of leadership are really in that earlier phase. James, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. The reason why I was so excited for this conversation and what we were talking about earlier is when we think about like ELC and the idea of empowering engineering leaders, the practices that you introduced here in terms of engaging your team by bringing them problems and involving them in talking about Socratic questions as a, a way to arrive at decisions and developing principles, like all of these things, like I feel like embody what it means to be an engineering leader who can empower other people. So thank you for, for helping everybody listening in uh, do a little bit better on that quest. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a genuine pleasure. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.